Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Greg, and this is Isaac. Uh, we're going to read the Bible uh, together. And uh, if you've got a, a blue Bible in your chair, you might want to turn to Revelation chapter 10 and chapter 11, which is found on page 1243. And uh, the sermon today will be based on this passage as well. So you might want to stick a leaflet in there as a bookmark afterwards. It'll also be on the screen. So Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud and with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like a roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices... That of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay, but in the days where the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and, and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told... You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they will stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some, some from every People, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. Uh, 
The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And when they, and they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and survivors were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Your na the nations were angry and your wrath has come. It is time for the it is time for judging the dead and rewarding your servants, the prophets, who have, who you, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple, seen the ark of, the, of his covenant. And then there came flashes of lightning from rumblings, peals of thunder, peals of thunder, an earthquake and a severe hailstorm. Thanks, Greg and Isaac. And uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Cam Maxwell. I'm one of the staff here. Um, and I have a question to start us off, which is, I wonder what you think the future of the church will be like? What will the future of the church be like? Uh, some of you will be here uh, perhaps worried for the future of the church. You feel that Christians are losing or have already lost our place at the table in society. As you drive around Adelaide, the you know, supposed city of churches, you see empty churches or bridal shops or nightclubs that used to be churches. For many Australians, the assumption seems to be that actually it's, the church is on the way out. It's just a matter of time, especially here in the West. There'll be some uh, who are like that this morning. Others, though, uh, you might be more confident about the future of the church. Uh, perhaps you've been around at this church for a while and you've seen us grow, you've seen us plant a church, they've grown, we've grown, you think, oh, this is pretty easy. Uh, we've got huge hordes of children coming through, the next generation's looking pretty good. This doesn't seem that hard, does it? Matt seems to know what he's doing. We'll be all right. <laughs> Matt's laughing a bit too hard at that one at the moment. <laughs> Perhaps, though, uh, to the surprise of many Australians, you just know uh, of some of the spots in the world where there is just explosive growth in the church, uh, places like China or Nepal or India or South America. 
Now, we all probably tend uh, towards one way or the other, optimism or pessimism, and that'll depend on our personalities, whether we've had coffee yet, what we're exposed to, all that kind of stuff. Either way, our optimism or our pessimism will influence the way we think about the mission of the church. And then that'll influence how we are involved in it. If we're pessimistic, we'll be tempted to keep our heads down and retreat. And if we tend towards optimism, well, we might end up being surprised or even shaken to the core when our mission doesn't go as we think it should. Now, we're in our second week looking at Revelation, and it's, it's a wonderful, vivid, uh, it's the last book of the Bible, as we've just had read for us. It might not be obvious uh, from what we've just read, but uh, today, I hope Revelation will help us see how the future of the church, we'll see what it looks like from God's perspective. After all, Revelation, that's what it is. It's a series of visions, highly symbolic visions, often a little bit hard to understand, uh, but they're visions that give us a heavenly perspective on world events, on world history. What Revelation has to say about the future and the mission of the church will help us um, be helpful for both optimists and pessimists. Uh, now, last week we looked at chapters 6 and 7, and uh, we saw how it was really the story of history. Uh, chapter 6 ch- basically covers uh, the whole period between Jesus' first coming, some 2,000 years ago, right up to the point where he will return again. Uh, the sermon is online if you'd like to catch up on that one. Uh, today we're skipping over chapters 8 and 9, mostly because uh, they're, they're kind of a replay, I think, of chapter 6. Uh, Revelation 8 and 9 sort of covers the same stretch of history between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, but it's a replay that has a kind of a different focus. Uh, we see this a bit in Revelation. Uh, Re- Revelation in chapter 6, there was a general account of what living on this world will be like in the period between Christ's first and second coming, where we're living under God's judgment. Chapters 8 and 9 do the same thing, but with a special focus, a focus especially on those in this period of history who don't belong to Jesus. Uh, I want to just mention the big idea of chapter 8 and 9. We're skipping over it, but the big idea of chapter 8 and 9 will help us as we get to uh, chapters 10 and 11 today. Uh, In chapters 8 and 9, trumpets are blown by angels. Uh, Each trumpet blow signals a plague on the earth. Uh, Many of you, I imagine, will be familiar with the plagues uh, that God sends on Egypt in the Exodus. There's hail, darkness, blood in the water, there's locusts, a plague of death. It's horrible stuff. And we see these same kind of plagues described in Revelation 8 and 9. The point of it all, it seems, uh, the point of it all, just like in Exodus, the plagues are signs, loud trumpet blasts, warnings that the world is living under God's judgment. And that's because none of us, no one, has treated God as he deserves. In fact, we all do the opposite. We rebel against our Creator, and all rebels will face justice. And so disaster, tragedy, it's a constant reminder that this world is facing God's judgment. The idea is we should turn to God and see his mercy while we, sh- while we still can. These plagues are designed to make people wake up to the fact that the world is not as it should be, and that we do need God to save us. That's what should happen. But just like what we see in Exodus, 
we see in chapter 9 of Revelation. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how loud the trumpets blow, warning about God's coming judgment, no matter how bad it gets, no one wants to cry out for help. If you have your Bibles open, which would be helpful in the next little while, uh, if you have your Bibles open, look at the end of chapter 9. This is verse 20 of Revelation 9. Chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. These warnings from God, disaster and tragedy we see all around us, they are signs that God's greater judgment is still coming. But that is not enough, it seems. It's not enough to make people turn to God. Disaster by itself won't do that. That's a big idea of chapter 8 and 9, and I think that sets us up then for chapter 10. Because the question we have is, well, what does it take? What does it take for that warning to get through? What we see in chapter 10 is the answer, I think, that it takes the bittersweet word of God. You have a look at that angel described in chapter 10. He's a pretty impressive specimen, isn't he? Uh, If you want someone uh, to hear the message you have for them, you send this guy, you listen to this guy. He's mighty, he's massive, he's shiny, he roars like a lion. Uh, Whatever message he holds in his little scroll, it's clearly something that should not be ignored. This whole scene in Revelation 10 is actually a replay of something from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Uh, It's hundreds of years before Jesus. Daniel has a very similar conversation with a very similar angel. Uh, Daniel chapter 12, I recommend having a look at this if you want to think more about that. Uh, In Daniel 12, the angel tells Daniel that in Daniel's time, there will be a big delay before the end, a big delay, and Daniel just needs to wait. But here in Revelation, in verse 6 and 7, John is told, well, now you're in the final stretch of history. The seventh, the final trumpet will sound, and everything God has promised through the prophets will be fulfilled. That's what's going on, I think, in uh, Revelation chapter 10. We're hearing that John is in the final stages of history, and so, does he get to put his feet up and you know, sit on his lazy boy and watch it all unfold? Well, no, John is given a job. In verse 8, John is asked to, or from verse 8, sorry, John is asked to go and have a look at the scroll, uh, and then he's told to eat it. It's pretty weird, right? Um, I unfortunately can't help thinking of it as a delicious pastry, some kind of like little cinnamon scroll or something like that. Uh, it's far easier to kind of imagine that happening, but it's not. It's, it's a paper scroll. It is, it is pretty weird. Um, maybe it's slightly less weird to know that, uh, like so much in Revelation, this also is a replay of something from the Old Testament. Uh, prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they were also told to do this. Ezekiel had a very similar vision. And in this vision, it's not literal, he doesn't physically eat paper, but it's a vision symbolizing something. It's symbolizing what their prophecy, what their prophetic work is all about. I think, so think about eating someone's words, they become part of you, don't they? You embody that word, which means the prophets are really the spokesperson of God himself. When they speak words, they are God's words. They have taken them into themselves. 
Well, the question is, what's written on the scroll? I'm sure, as you could probably imagine, uh, there's plenty of suggestions people have come up with. What we are told, though, is it's sweet on the lips, but it's sour once you've swallowed it. Other translations go with the word bitter, has a bitter kind of aftertaste, or it tastes good, but it doesn't necessarily sit easy once the full reality sinks in. We're also told in verse 11 it's a prophecy about, or perhaps better, a prophecy against, so something negative about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Now, I think, um, like many things, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I think what's on the scroll is what John will tell us throughout the rest of Revelation. What's on the scroll is what John will tell us throughout the rest of Revelation, which is the gospel. It's the good news that's sweet on the lips that the Lamb wins. Jesus, by his death, has conquered all the powers of evil. By his blood, he paid the penalty that rebels deserve to pay, death. Jesus took that penalty for our sins. He took it on himself. He took on all the plagues, all the pain, all the punishment, so those who trust in him don't have to. That means those who trust Jesus no longer live on death row, which means we have nothing to fear Jesus has conquered all evil powers. We have nothing to fear from them. We have nothing to fear from God's wrath. We have no reason even to fear death itself. That is a beautiful message to hold out, isn't it? It's sweet. What a delight to be able to tell everyone, to tell anyone, this wonderful news. Because it's a message of salvation. And it's for anyone, from any tribe, any nation, any background. There is salvation in Jesus. That's the good news. Now, you might be here as someone who's uh, checking these things out, and you're new to uh, to things of Jesus, you're new to Revelation. Uh, Big welcome to you. We're delighted you're here with us. Revelation is, at times, a very confusing book, but I really hope that in your time with us, you might see why it might be worth taking Revelation seriously. Uh, I also hope that, even if it's confusing, this much is clear to you. There is salvation in Jesus for anyone who turns to him. If you're curious about that, if you're curious about why we take Revelation seriously, we'd love to chat more about that. Please just let us know. It's a sweet message. But the other side, the bitter side of the same coin, to mix some metaphors there for us, we'll see this later in Revelation, just how confronting it is when a holy God, a holy God who is perfect in every way, when he calls to account everyone who is not protected by the blood of the Lamb. It's confronting, as we'll see. So it's a bitter thought, a, a bitter day for those, for those who stand on the wrong side of him. It's also a bitter bitterness for the messenger, isn't it? For the, for the prophet who declares this good news. Because as we proclaim that Jesus is bringing judgment to everyone who rebels against him, that's a lot of people. A lot of people we know, people we love. There are people who refuse that this good news can be good for them too. For some, the good news is not the sweet fragrance of life, but the stench of death. Now, this is the message of the church. This is the gospel. It's delicious on one hand, it's wonderful. 
which tells us we should expect to see people taste the gospel and find salvation. We should be optimistic about that. There are people in our world desperate for the truth. People are desperate to be free of fear, to find meaning, to find hope, to find love and peace. We should be bold, we should be brave. It's a great message. For many, it will be the sweetest thing they have ever heard. But we should also expect it won't be easy. It won't sit easy. Many will, sadly, of course, reject this news and all the warnings that come with it. Now, this is the message for John to proclaim. It's the message that we, the church, are to proclaim. So to return to the question I first asked, well, what will the future of the church be like with this message, this bittersweet message? What will the future be like? Chapter 11 of Revelation uh, is not at all straightforward. Uh, There are plenty of thoughts about what's going on. What I want to do for the next little while is try and explain why I think, uh, I'm not 100% certain, but I think chapter 11 is really a picture of the church. I know it's not obvious, and uh, I took a while to get there, but, and I had some really great help from uh, great commentaries I can recommend if you're interested. I think Revelation 11 is a picture of the church, and I'll give you a few reasons for that. Uh, Firstly, in the first uh, couple verses there, John is told to measure the temple. Now, when John wrote this, there was no temple. Uh, It had been destroyed by the Romans in AD 70, some 20 or 30 years before John writes Revelation. Uh, But I guess more to the point, uh, Jesus, by dying on the cross, made the temple completely irrelevant uh, as a religious institution. Jesus was the final great sacrifice. So as John is told to measure the temple, it could be there is some kind of future literal temple on view. That could be the case. But it seems more likely that temple is representing something else. I say that because in the New Testament... Believers are described as the temple. Because of what Jesus has done, God doesn't dwell in a temple anymore. By His Spirit, He dwells in His people. And we are therefore described as a temple. 1 Corinthians 6 is a good example of that. Throughout Revelation as well, when we see temple, it nearly always, I think, is referring to the heavenly temple. If you see the end of chapter 11 there, we we see that, that heavenly kind of temple. It seems the big idea, uh, when you can't think about temple in Revelation and the New Testament, is that God's people, we have access already to that heavenly temple by God's Spirit. There's no need for an earthly temple. I think it's a similar idea as well in verse 2, the holy city, uh, the holy city in verse 2. Now, it could literally be Jerusalem, Uh, plenty of people think that. But again, the thrust of the New Testament, uh, Hebrews 12 especially, Christians are told that we already dwell in heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly city. We are already there as citizens of heaven. That's the kind of language we see. In fact, later on in Revelation, uh, especially in chapter 21, we'll see a holy city representing God's people, the church. Now, what's more, I think, uh, to help kind of give us a bit of shape, verse 1, there's instruction to measure it all, measure the temple. Uh, What's going on here, I think, is an echo of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is told to do the same thing, uh, to measure a temple and altars, and in fact, to measure the whole city. 
The thing is, that temple that Ezekiel sees in a vision, a similar sort of time, the temple's not uh, in existence really, uh, as Ezekiel's told to measure a temple, it seems that temple has very heavenly features. For instance, a river of life flowing out from it. I could be wrong, but for me this adds up to suggest we're reading about the church, all those who belong to Christ. And you will have noticed in verse 2, a church that gets trampled, not literally by Gentiles, I would think, but by those who don't belong to God's people. The church will get beaten and bruised. But this picture of being measured by God, that is an assurance that He knows exactly how the church will be, how it will fare, is a promise of protection. The church will stand because God has measured it. It will face a pummeling, but protected by God Himself. We're told here this will happen for 42 months, uh, which is actually, you'll notice in verse 3, it's the same amount of time as 1,260 days. 42 months is the same amount of time as 1,260 days. Again, plenty of people take that as a literal time frame. And again, I think it seems far better to take that as a symbolic amount of time. I'll say more about that next week, uh, because we'll come back to that idea. But for now, what I'll say is that three and a half years, or 42 months, it's most likely, uh, again, some degree of uncertainty here, I think it's most likely the symbolic period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. The period is representative of the time that we now live in. It's a bit confusing, I know, and it'd be entirely unsatisfying if you have a very sort of a literal understanding of uh, this sort of length of time. As I say, I'll come back to it next week, uh, so please just bear with me on this one. Uh, What I'm saying here is I think... What we have in chapter 11 is the story of the church. Protected, but battered and bruised. And of course, we see this all throughout history, don't we? And we see it around the world right now. We see opposition to God's people is often violent, severe and heavy-handed. And yet the church survives. It continues the work of sharing the gospel. We might not feel particularly trampled here in Adelaide, Um, Some of us might, but it's important to keep remembering that that is very unusual in the history of the world and indeed around the world at the moment. Perhaps it's best for us to not get too used to it, the freedoms that we have. Of course, thanking God for the peace that we have, it's good, but also praying for our brothers and sisters who do feel battered and bruised. Now, that's the first couple of verses of chapter 11. I think, as I say, it's about the church, and I think... Uh, the rest of the chapter is also about the church. It does get a bit tricky here, so again, I could be even more wrong, but I'll take us through it, and hopefully it'll become a bit clearer for all of us, including myself, as we go. What's going on from verse 3? That's a question I've asked a lot this week. Um, I think the most helpful thing I've come across is being pointed in the direction of Zechariah chapter 4. You guys all know Zechariah 4, don't you? You know what's going on there? <laughs> no, neither did I. Um, Unfortunately, time is against us. We don't have time to go and read all of Zechariah 4 right now. I don't like doing this. I would like to take us through and sort of point out the big picture, but time is against us. So what I'm going to ask you to do is trust me for now. I'll give us a summary of Zechariah 4, but please go and read it and see that what I'm saying actually adds up. Here's a summary of Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah was a prophet during the time that Israel's temple was being rebuilt. It had been destroyed, and the king Zerubbabel, I think I'm saying that right, it's a great name, Zerubbabel, King Zerubbabel is overseeing the building, rebuilding of the temple. 
it's not going great. There's all kinds of problems. And during this time, Zechariah, in chapter 4, he has a vision. Uh, God gives him a vision of a golden lampstand, kind of like the lampstand that represents the one that stands before God in the temple. The lampstand's burning brightly because it's supplied with an endless supply of olive oil. You don't have to think about this much with electricity, but keeping a lamp burning takes regular amounts of oil, but this one has a never-ending supply of oil. It can never go out, is the point, because next to the lamp are two olive trees. The two olive trees, and from those olive trees, the pipes are kind of plugged into the tree, and they run from the tree into the lamp. There's oil always running to the lamp. That's the vision uh, that Zechariah gets. There's an endless supply of oil to keep the lamp burning. The main point, I think, of that vision is that, well, God says this, the main point of the vision is that he is giving assurance to the king, Zerubbabel. Yes, this temple will be built, says God. The light will shine. But here's the key to the whole thing. It will get built, but not by power or by might, but by my spirit, says God. God's spirit will empower this work of rebuilding the temple. And in this image, the two olive trees that are sort of tapped into, the oil running through, the two olive trees, we're told, represent uh, the king, Zerubbabel, and the priest, Joshua. So we've got God's spirit at work in the king and the priest to do the work of rebuilding the temple. That's what's going on in Zechariah 4. I take it that's kind of assumed knowledge for us as we get to Revelation 11, uh, which is entirely unhelpful if you've never read Zechariah 4 before, but there we go, there's a brief summary. What does it all mean? Back in Revelation now. In Revelation, three times John calls the church a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. King and priest, two olive trees. Two olive trees fueled by the Spirit of God to build his temple, to do his work. They are to witness as being a light to the world. I take it the two witnesses from verse 3 seem to be representing the church. Throughout the entire period of Christ's first and second coming, here, symbolically, 1,260 days, the task of the church is to prophesy, to declare the gospel in verse 3. Well, we do that, you notice, dressed in sackcloth. Not particularly stylish or glorious, is it? Mission doesn't look that great. But it is fueled by God himself, an endless supply of power to do the work he has set for us. So as a church, our mission, telling people the good news about Jesus, we will not complete that mission through might or power. It's not about being clever or being strategic or charming. Our mission won't succeed by adopting the best missional tactics that we've seen other people using. Those things are good, they're fine. But it's not by our strength that the church will achieve its mission. It's by the Spirit of God. It's God's work. I think verses 5 and 6, as uh, spectacular as they are, I think they're simply reinforcing that point. How powerful the witness of the church is. Uh, verses 5 and 6 are referring to the great prophets, uh, Elijah and Moses. Uh, they are ordinary men who God did extraordinary things through. It's not their power that brought the plagues on Egypt or called down drought for three and a half years. It's the power of God who worked through them to do that. 
I don't think as well that those verses about shooting fire out of the mouth are literal. Um, Prophets like Jeremiah spoke about their preaching being like speaking like fire. The idea is that when God's word is spoken, it carries judgment for everyone who rejects it. The judgment is real, uh, but probably delayed. What this all means, I think what this all means is the power behind the church, it means that our mission cannot fail. The mission of the church will not fail. We will keep testifying around the world, proclaiming the good news that Jesus wins. The work of mission is a God-appointed task, it's a God-empowered task, which means we should be very optimistic about the outcomes of this mission. The church's mission will be successful at reaching every single person God has called, every single person. So, be encouraged. Be encouraged in your efforts to share Jesus with others. It's not by our strength or our power It's not by being intelligent and having the right answers or being charming or winsome. It's by the Spirit. It's by the Spirit that God's work is done. It doesn't look fancy. We won't feel powerful necessarily. But it's a powerful work that God does. So let's be people who keep working hard at praying for the lost, praying for one another as we do this work, calling on God by His Spirit to work the salvation, uh, the miracle of salvation in many. Get to verses 7 and 10, though, and it does seem like there's a bit of a spanner in the works with this great optimism I've, optimism I've just spoken about. I think what we see in these verses is that our optimism should be about the outcome of the mission, not about how easy or smooth it will be. Uh, it's hard to say whether verse 7 is a glimpse of the future, like a period in the future when the church will fall silent and looks like it's wiped out. It could be. Uh, it could be that these verses are telling us something true about every generation of the church, We'll come back to the beast from the abyss next week. It sounds bad. Kind of is. Uh, But the big idea of next week is don't worry. So again, come back to that next week. It's true though, isn't it? There have been many points through history where in some parts of the world, the church looks dead. The gospel is no longer being preached. And it looks like the world has overcome. And the world has celebrated. At times, it has looked like Jesus lied when he said... Even the gates of hell won't overcome my church. It's fitting though, isn't it? It's fitting that the one we testify about, Jesus, well, he was trampled. He was despised and rejected. He was beaten and killed. People celebrated getting rid of him, the troublemaker, because they're sick and tired of all this uncomfortable talk he was, was given of truth and judgment. It's fitting that the church goes the same way as the Lamb. So, so powerful, so much power, but operating in weakness, reviled, beaten and killed. It's fitting because just like the Lamb, in that weakness, God's plans are fulfilled. It's by following Jesus, living out the gospel, When the church takes up the cross to follow him, living costly lives, boldly proclaiming, bravely proclaiming the truth, it's how the church shows that death is not the end. And so, we should be very optimistic about mission and the future of the church, because it's God's mission, but we should also keep remembering what it will look like, being trampled, being despised, and apparently 
being attacked by otherworldly beasts. More on that next week. From the outside, the church won't look glorious, it won't look wonderful, and to us, in a sense, it shouldn't. It shouldn't look glorious. Not until Christ comes again. And that's okay, isn't it? It's okay because we testify about a lamb who didn't look glorious or powerful or wonderful. Yet he rose to life, never to die again. In exactly the same way, as you get to verse 11 here, we see the promise for the church that at the close of history, the church will be shown by, to everyone to have been right all along. It might not look like it now, but Jesus is truly the risen Lord of all. This kind of final section of chapter 11, it's, it's a beautiful picture, as a sweet day for God's people, where justice is done and truth is made plain. You see the final moment played out in verse 15 as the final trumpet blows. The kingdom of God takes over once and for all, and it's a wonderful kingdom. We see in Jesus what his kingdom's like. It's full of mercy and grace. There's no evil, there's no sin. It's a sweet day. And at the end, verse 19, there, the temple in heaven is opened. Seems to be that there is full and complete access to God's presence. How good is that? Being able to enjoy the full presence of the one who made us, who loves us. This is how the church triumphs. Not through legislation that will make our lives easier. Not by clever church planning strategies. Not by brilliant leadership or excellent kind of cutting-edge mission, missional strategies. Those things are good. But the church conquers by the power of the Spirit. And because the Lamb has already conquered. Our job in the meantime is to simply keep going. Keep testifying as we're able. Weak though we are, declaring the sweet, wonderful truth, the Lamb wins. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the cross, that there you defeated every other authority, every evil, and you made a way for us to have peace with God. So we thank you for inviting us to join in this bittersweet task of sharing the good news with our world. Thanks for the insurance we have that's by your power, you will see this mission accomplished. Help us and help our brothers and sisters all around the world to be faithful and courageous as we declare the gospel and we ask that you would bring many to salvation. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.